But we're glad that you guys are here. So if you haven't been following along with us, we're, we're at about chapter 6 in the book of Revelation. We've covered a lot of ground so far, but we'll summarize a little bit. But feel free to join in and uh, ask questions or make comments to you. are more than welcome to do so at any point. And so just to help us, I don't know, turn those gears in the head, warm up the engine, I feel like that can be helpful at times. Try not to take too much time to do this, so it's not covering everything we've said, but just broad strokes of what we've done so far. So the very top part of our little diagram today, I always try to draw something up that either reflects where we want to try to get to today or what we've done. doesn't mean we'll get there at all, but... So it's not necessary, but just a helpful visual. The very top is just a reminder, there are 22 chapters to Revelation, and I'll say this every single week so that we remember that. No matter where we are in the book, we want to remember what we've covered and have an idea of how much is left, too. You want to, we're trying to do whole reading, so we're reading everything in light of the whole thing. So as, as much of the book you can read ahead of where we are, it can be helpful. So 22 chapters. We noted that the whole book is a letter. To the churches. We saw that from the first chapter, and in chapter 22, there is a beginning to the letter and an end. And so John makes that pretty clear that he's starting to write, and he does that before chapters 2 and 3, which are seven distinct messages to seven different churches. But in the first chapter, he just says, this is all going to be my letter to you. So really, those seven letters are the beginning of the letter. The whole thing is the letter. And that's relevant for us because we want to see how the message of the letter to those churches would have been received at that time to, to them, something that they would have grasped or understood. So that's, that's something we keep coming back to, is how, how does this tie into that? Uh, so we identified that Jesus is reflected in the first chapter as God himself, nothing less than that. He is the one who is among the lampstand, walking among those seven lampstands, reflecting or representing the churches at large. So he's in the church, around the church, he's taking care of the church. And in those seven messages, he corrects some. Actually, for the vast majority, right, we saw that out of seven, five needed severe correction to the point that Jesus said, if you don't change what you're doing, I'm going to have to remove your light. I'm going to come at you with a sword. Like, it's very strong language that he's not happy with their current status. But he hasn't given up on them. And we kind of, I kind of suggested that maybe the whole, the whole seven letters is together one big message. So the last one carries this sense of Jesus saying, if you listen to what I'm telling you, come to me. I, I can give you the strength that you need to accomplish what I'm asking you to do. He's not just severely castigating them and then letting them figure it out on their own. Now he says, come to me. I have the gold that you need. I have the salve for your eyes so that you can really see. I can clothe you with white garments. I can take care of you. So there's repentance, there's forgiveness offered, there's strength offered in the message as a whole to the seven churches. So he's the one who will correct them as well as establish them and sustain them. So that was relevant because the way Jesus is pictured in chapter one, he's got really long white hair, he's got eyes with fire, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, and we identified that these things weren't meant to be taken. Uh, literally, that there's literally a sharp object coming out of his mouth, or that his eyes have fire inside of them, or that he has actually that color hair, or that the clothes he's wearing in chapter 1 are his, is his wardrobe of heaven. It's meant to represent qualities and attributes of his that match up with the messages he gives to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. So something interesting happens because when we got to 4 and 5, he's not portrayed the same way as in chapter 1. In chapters 4 and 5, at the throne room, he's portrayed as something that doesn't make sense, which is an, an animal that is standing yet is dead, the slain lamb, right? We, we highlighted that as a key image. And again, it's not to tell us that Jesus is an animal, but it's attributes of his. So neither are the, the horns that the lamb has meant to be something that we need to be looking when we see Jesus one day. The, how does, you know, where are the horns on his head or something of that kind? It's just meant to represent an attribute of his. So he is the lamb, he, and the lamb represents the people, and the lamb died for the people. We, that's a big, a big important mark. And what we did the last two weeks has just been reflecting on what that means even outside of the book, that this moment 
uh, we are going to be reading it as representing what Jesus did on the cross and what happened when he ascended and you know shortly after that this is the scene of maybe the spiritual significance or the realities that happen where he ascends to the Father receives the authority right in the book as, as he grasps the book that is sealed he's the only one allowed to open it and it represents him receiving all authority and we tied that to uh, all of the expectation in history from creation to the beginning of Israel to all these expected things that were supposed to happen the kingdom of God we have the ruler that had been long waited and he's very different and very much the same as what God had said uh, he just rules very differently and that slain lamb is the key surprise he is the king who rules as a slain lamb so his big victory in God's eyes what is what looks like in man's eyes defeat because he died that's what they saw a dead human on a cross and God viewed that as victorious over the forces of evil and obedience to his plan so those are big big picture things that we've identified I figured if we ran through that if there was something that we can reiterate um, clarify or some other thought you had that maybe we didn't get to last week just give you a moment there for us to to chat about that so far this is significant right I've been trying to hint in indirect and in very direct ways chapters 4 and 5 are significant for us how we read the rest of the book and I I highlighted one way more common that 4 and 5 represents maybe something that will happen at the end of time when uh, the end starts because this is when the lamb takes the seven seals and starts opening them right so if we, if, if we are nailing this down to what what happens here at the cross that means that the beginning of the seals happens at the ascension of Jesus 2,000 years ago these things begin to unfold as opposed to this being a scene of a heavenly reality that will take place in the future future from us and those scenes will unfold we we mentioned that is one one common way of understanding that but the way we'll be, we will be reading this is this the throne room is the scene of what happened to Jesus when he ascended received the authority from the Father to begin to rule and we'll try seeing the impacts of that today in chapter 6 where that starts having ramifications for how we understand what's happening there but it really ties together the book being a letter to the seven churches this is something that would have applied to them directly and we'll see where that goes what so again I'm just buying some time here to see if you have a thought before we I don't want to get ahead and uh, we had a thought or a question that we didn't get to so any any thoughts about that what we said earlier or anything else before we get going and any anything really is valid I've been thinking this week about what you were just talking about and one of my questions is it does it really matter and especially you know it's said that God is without time so maybe it's both you know it, it, it's the future but it's already in a sense happening now in heaven and God is revealing but mm -hmm. I'm, I may not realize it until the future that's true um, you're right in one sense we shouldn't be so concerned about making sure we've nailed down the right thing as if that's going to change this afternoon but it does have some implications for um, how we understand what we have got, gone through as a church what we are going through maybe right now and what's going to happen uh, maybe distant in the future or close so for example if these if what we're going to read from chapter 6 through 19 is something that has nothing to do with our present experience we might be more tempted to read the message as the main thrust of the message is not directly applicable to me and you but just more like oh this is something important that someone should know in the future and we need to relate to somebody else uh -huh. but if it's something that is for now or has been ongoing as you said there would be something directly applicable to you and me yeah. so just like the seven letters if the letters are just something for the past then we look at that and we go well maybe there are things that we have similarities with and so we can look as a lesson to learn from history but if it's something for right now that God said I'm giving them to them now but it applies to all of you today as well it has a, a weightier yeah. a weightier thing you know maybe there's something I need to immediately take care of because there might be an immediate consequence so uh, this relates to something you you did that in a jar of my memory we were talking about how would that work in practice with you know a letter being sent here 
could we expect that God gave a direct message to a set of churches and then he expected all the churches to kind of be in on that? Some, we raised that, I think, a couple weeks ago. And then I remember that in Colossians, we have an example of a letter written to one church that at the very end, Paul says, make sure other churches read this one too. And you read theirs. That there were multiple letters out there at the time of Paul. And we don't have all of them. But these were the ones that were deemed eternal, uh, inspired to the extent they apply across the board. So if you go to the end of the book of Colossians, I, I remember that I wanted us just to look at that as a, it's the one, really the one clear example where we can see that there, there is an idea that the churches read each other's letters that Paul sent and that they would have learned. So even if Paul wrote to Ephesus, he could have written to them or to any other church thinking, okay, this is good for them, but this is edifying for all churches to read, which is in very, very interesting thought. So Colossians chapter 4, and um, just better be in here or else I'm losing my mind. Oh, yes, it is in here. So Colossians 4, <coughs> verse 14, I'll start, I'll start there just because my name is in this part. Um, there's no bearing to this, but uh, 414 says, Luke, the beloved physician, which we think is the guy who wrote Luke and Acts, right? He was a friend of Paul, which brings a very interesting perspective to that, to his books. Anyways, he greets you as does Demas, which was a guy that at this point was hanging in there. And there's another part in the Bible where it says, Demas fell in love with the world and forsook me. So I was doing well here so far. <laughs> and then uh, apparently I don't end up so well. But anyways, yeah, that's just my mention there. I just thought that was neat for you guys to see. Okay, 15. <laughs> this is what I really wanted us to see. Greet, uh, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, one of the churches of Revelation, by the way, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Right? That, that's it. There you go. Real small, no big headlines for this one, but just read this letter and then pass it along because it's going to be good for them. It doesn't apply directly to them, but Paul felt that there would be something in there they could benefit from. No other reason to think Revelation wasn't the same kind of thing. Here's a letter to these seven churches. There's specific needs that are addressed, but... I don't think it would be that crazy to think that this letter got circulated beyond the seven letters. And um, that's part of how we have it today, was that it got circulated, and then people realized, hey, this is much more than just one letter. And many, many others were written that, didn't, that that didn't happen to. Okay. So anyways, thanks, Dennis, for bringing up uh, that. We'll, we'll, return, we'll always try to return to that so what question, which is yeah. so what? So what if we're claiming this? What difference does it does it really make? Maybe today we'll get a little bit of a taste of, of a so what type of scenario. So we look at the seven C. Oh, actually, any anything else? Anybody else before we start getting into this? We're back to Revelation six. Okay. I will assume then that we're good for now. Uh, ideally, what we would do is read chapters 6 and 7 together. That would be the ideal scenario. I, I think we will just read 6 for now, and I'll make a comment about what we're going to look at. Both the seven seals and then what follows them, the seven trumpets, they follow a similar overall pattern, which is the first four seem to be closely linked together, and then in terms of what happens, the four seals and the four trumpets. And then the fifth seems to be more of a standalone. The sixth is another kind of standalone. They're not intimately connected. So, for example, the first four seals, they're horses. And they're kind of, they're kind of together. Four horses running around together. And then the fifth one is a vision. And the sixth one is giant earthquakes happening. So they're not necessarily, first four, you can tell they're much more similar, closely tied together. The first horse, the second horse, third, fourth, third and fourth. They're, they're like a unit. And then the other ones aren't, aren't about the horses anymore. The horses are gone. So they just kind of go alone. And then between the sixth and the seventh seal, there are two separate visions. And the trumpets follow a similar thing. There are one, two, three, four that seem to be closely tied together and then five and six, and then there's two visions, and then the seventh. So that just tells us that there's some structure here to these, and we're going to try to pay attention to that and try to remember a little bit of each one. 
So the the first, I believe the first six are chapter six. And then chapter seven has the two visions. And then at the very end or the beginning of eight, we have the seventh. So we will just focus on these here, the first six. But overall, what it looks like to me when we get to the sixth one, we'll read through. I just want you to think that the way that we're reading this, what it does is it puts the seals as describing the entire period of time from Christ ascending to then his eventual return, which means we're in there, Dennis. Right? That would be one implication for reading this, that would describe something that affects us directly. So we'll read six, uh, keep that in mind, and then we'll start looking at these, these units individually and deal with questions as they come. All right, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read this if you guys don't mind listening to my voice. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider, <clears throat> a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Goodness gracious, that's already <laughs> sufficient, right? Let's complete this thing. When they opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its fruit, winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave-free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And boy, who can stand. All right, so we'll end with that question. And the ending note there, I want you to notice it really seems like a final kind of note. The day of the great wrath of the Lamb seems to be a pretty dramatic final kind of moment. And so we have the seven seals, and we won't get into the other visions just because of, of time for this morning, but <clears throat> they seem to describe... Um, the very end, at least, seems to me to describe the end, the judgment, the final judgment of God, the judgment of the Lamb against the rulers of the world, as we describe. It's just basically everybody, huh? The great, the generals, rich, powerful, everyone, slave and free. They're hiding themselves in caves and in rocks. And this whole thing is pretty dramatic, right? It's pretty awesome in, in some ways. So we're placing it in the middle of this book where we've seen already so many images and symbols and i would suggest we we keep that in mind that unless the symbols are told given to us as and this means this that we need to work at trying to piece them together that all things might not have face value unless otherwise stated and the temptation is to read these almost 
entirely isolated from the rest of the letter. And then it really freaks us out. Like, who are these horses? Who are these people? It seems like something out of a comic book, right? A writer called Death? That sounds awfully weird. You know, it's like these people we've never been introduced to before in the Bible. Um, so let's go and look at these first four horsemen and some details. But I'm putting out there this general idea that we understand the seals to represent time from the resurrection of Jesus, covering all that time until the sixth seal, where it seems to be saying we are right up to that point where uh, God's going to judge the rulers of the world, the final judgment of God. That, that's how I would suggest a natural reading of those seals, especially that sixth one, seems to indicate. So, any question about that? And that's okay to voice a thought, a contrasting thought to it. That that would be totally uh, welcome. Yeah, can Meredith. We, can we uh, imagine it as being part of what judgment God did against the Egyptians? In other words, each one of these they're worded a little bit differently, but each one comes out almost the same way that it came out back there. Am I right or am I? They sound very similar, don't they? Yeah. <clears throat> to um. And it's definitely going to be imagery from the past. We've noticed that already, right? When he writes to the letters, he starts mentioning people from the Old Testament like Balaam and Jezebel, who were not alive at the time of, of uh, John writing this. And he just expects you to know, be familiar. So I would definitely say you're on to something, Claude, with uh, when he writes. He does write, especially thinking of the exile, the judgments of the exile, and the great judgment of Egypt, where God came down and just judged all their gods and he this, this looks eerily similar to bringing um, natural disasters on the earth it looks it looks just like the plagues of Egypt in that sense the trumpets might look more similar there's going to be some some closer similarity but uh, overall the idea of God judging the world the nations and doing it through natural means you know like bringing hailstones to fall um, that looks a lot like God how God has judged in the past that, does that kind of capture a little bit of what you're... That's where I'm coming from, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Meredith, you had your, I think, your finger or two raised. <laughs> so, yeah, because it's interesting that we are even here today. And Ken and I were talking about it as we were coming. And I said, I just want to ask the Holy Spirit for us to see and hear the reason why he has us to be here. He's been speaking to me a lot out of word, the power of his word. What I found, I don't know what version you're reading out of, but there's a word missing from several of these scriptures. I have the King James, uh -huh. but it's a powerful word. It's a three-letter word. And every time you said come and stopped, but in the King James, it says come and see. And I'm just, just putting this out there. The spirit was quickening me. He said, see, look closer, look closer. And so I'm expecting that when gross darkness is coming and has is even here that as in the book of john it says the spirit will show us things so i'm just asking for eyes to see and ears to hear thank you for your sharing yeah well you, you raised an interesting point um so they uh you will only see this in the king james bible this extra word see because uh, they pick one family of manuscripts and this these uh, manuscripts King James is based off is largely from 4th century onward. And so they, they have this come see in there. And what it does is it changes the orientation of this, so of who's speaking and to whom. So this is verse 1, what Meredith is pointing to. It happens when every horse shows up. So in verse 1, the land opens a, one of the seals. I heard a living creature say, so the living creature is speaking, and he says, come. And then the King James tradition of manuscripts have come see. Come and see. Yeah, come and then see. Two commands. And the see would be referencing John. Come, come up here and look at what's about to happen. So it becomes the creature speaking to John to come. Whereas the, these, the other tradition of manuscripts, which are earlier and have wide, a wide attest, attestation as well. We have these two competing traditions the come is seems to be looking at the horses it's the command for the horses to come out 
and it's repeated when it says, I looked and behold, a white horse, uh, and he came out. There's a, there's a re repetition of, of, uh, of the verb to come, which um, that tradition has always stayed with. Oh, well, then he's speaking for, he's commanding the horses to come out. So there are two distinct um, almost meanings with that one. If we have come see, it's just merely, hey, John, come over here and look at this. Whereas the other one is a command now for the horses to move and to be released. So we have very two distinct traditions. And which translation or which uh, tradition would be the correct one? That's going to be an argument as old as time. People have been wrestling with that for a long time. And this is one of those places where there are actually distinct differences. You notice that difference <clears throat> between the two? Who who it's calling for. One becomes a command for the horse to be released, and the other one is an invitation for John to come see the horses being released. At the end of the day, e either way, you still come back to the big thrust here is God is releasing these horses, regardless of whether he's commanding them or not. But that would be the, that's one reason why some speculate people either added the sea or took away the sea, right? There's, there's one, either there were, there was copies and someone said, hey, I think this would sound better if there was a C here. Or it's the opposite. As they were copying, they say, the C seems uh, to be something we don't think it's talking about. So either somebody erased something or, or added something to the tradition of, of that one because they are, it's a very distinct little tiny word. So that's the reason that that's there, uh, th those differences. But the real, the real thing for us to be looking at is, regardless if it's a command to John or to the horse, the shocking thing in this is God is releasing these judgments on the earth. They aren't like these evil forces at war with God. They are things coming from the throne. They're being held there by him in his heavenly stable, I guess. And then he just says, all right, it's time. Time for you to go. Either he's asking John to come see it or he's commanding them. But regardless, they're under his, his prerogative. He's releasing them. Uh, you had a Joe the something. Message actually uses the word "come out," which would mean he's speaking to the horses. Yeah. So Eugene, Eugene would follow that. But it doesn't seem to make a difference either way how you take it. What happens after that, though, does it? No, that's kind of what. Because it says, "I looked," so he did see. That's kind of what I'm saying. Regardless of who the creatures are speaking to. The end result is the same. God is releasing the horses, and he wants John to see that and for us to see it as well. I think you can, you can take either way and get to the same ending here. That, that's the main thing. Come, come see what God is doing, and he is the one releasing these, these beasts. Now, what are they doing would be probably the, the thing that we should probably more concern ourselves with. Yeah, Nick. So when they show up earlier in Zechariah, is that... And it says that they were patrolling. Were they patrolling then? And then, like, here he's bringing them out, like, to answer, to, to call, like, the result of their patrol? Is that what's going on here? Right. So <clears throat> I think we might have mentioned that last time or not, but uh, there's something very similar in Zechariah 1 and in Zechariah 6 of horses that God speaks of. But they're not exactly the same as these. They're very similar. They happen to be fourfold. But they're different than the ones that we see in terms of what they're doing in the vision of Zechariah. In the vision of Zechariah, they're almost like, um, I don't know, these angelic... Scouts. Yeah, yeah. They're just wandering the earth. And then they punish nations that God is, is not happy with at the time. Uh, and then in Zechariah 6, there are groups of horses with chariots. These guys seem to come down to one. There's one horse and there's one rider on them. So they're, they're similar yet they're distinct. And so that's, that's the question. Are we even talking about horses? Right? That's the other thing here. Are we actually talking about, is that what we're meant to see, if we're going to go with the see idea? Is that John's message to us is, hey, there are these spiritual creatures up there called horses, but they're spiritual because they can ride on clouds. Right? I guess they're going to be different. Is that what we're meant to be understanding from the message? Is that, hey, there are these creatures up there, and I would just encourage you, that's not what we've been doing with Jesus so far since chapter 1. We're not worried about what kind of robe is it? You know, is there like a heavenly linen factory that made these robes? We're not worried about that, right? Because they just represent something. I'd even say there isn't, there isn't, that one's, it's not the point that he has long white hair 
That's not really the imagery we're supposed to be worried about. It's what they mean, what they're representing. That makes sense there, Nick? We're not worried about the horses per se. Are they the same exact ones, right? Where do they eat? Where do they sleep? Like, we're not worried about literal horses. We're thinking, what did that imagery represent back then? And just the idea of this horse with the chariot, it's, it's God's forces. He has these powerful forces. And that's what would have been represented as military might at the time back then. They didn't have tanks. They didn't have nuclear bombs. They didn't have guns. But armies with horses and armed horses would represent this military power and might. So from God's heavenly throne room, he has his army, these powerful forces, and these horses more or less represent these powers that he has the ability to control. But they're not just, they're not just horses that come run down over people. They, they have different powers, these horses. The deep picked up Elijah. Yeah, we do have a, a chariot of, of horses. We read about that here with uh, the story of Elijah and Elisha. <clears throat> and so did they pick somebody else up too. There was a, um, if you remember what we talked about with that, that's actually very interesting because the title, the chariots and their horsemen, is actually the title of the prophet. Do you remember that that Steve went over? That was a title for Elisha and it was a title for Elijah. They actually, the people, the person was called the chariot and the horsemen of God because they represented the very power of God being released on earth. So it's a, it's a very interesting question whether we're talking about spiritual beings or a power that they represent. But that's probably the one other place we do have the chariots in the Bible is Second Kings. Okay, so let's look at the first horseman a little bit uh, in detail from verse 2. He's white. I should say the horse is white. Its rider has a bow, and a crown is given to the rider. And he comes out conquering and to conquer. The word here, conquering, is none other than a word we've been seeing throughout this letter. Any guess? It is. It is the same word that's repeated throughout the message to each church for them to overcome, to conquer. It's the same description of the Lamb, what he did. He conquered, therefore he has the right to unseal the books. And then there's this word here. This horseman is allowed to conquer. And in the rest of the vision of Revelation, guess what? More people do this type of conquering and overcoming. There's a big evil beast later on in chapters 13 and 14 that God says, you're allowed to go conquer and conquer the people of God. And then he says, the people of God, you will conquer the beast by being faithful and dying. A lot of people are conquering in this book. And so this word is, is just like, a, hey, this is a big, important word that repeats a lot. I wish it was always translated the same so that we could highlight it, you know, make note to every time we see the word conquer. So what is he conquering? What is this? Because we see so many different meanings for conquering in the book so far in Revelation people of God are supposed to conquer, but we know that they conquer by remaining faithful to God and dying. That's how they conquer the enemy so far in the seven letters. Jesus conquered the same way. He died, remained faithful and obedient to God. Here we have, maybe, maybe for the first time or not, this writer is allowed to go and conquer. Who is he conquering and what does that conquering look like? Yeah, I'm Bev. Because it says he has a crown, it represents Christ being put in his rightful place as Messiah. So he's setting up as a kingdom with the crown. And so that salvation message to everybody. Yeah, you know that uh, that's a very, historically, that's been a very common thought about this one. I know that when you're reading this, you might think, oh, the four horsemen are all negative. But there was a large tradition in the church that thought the white represented probably something positive, And that, hey, Jesus has the crown, and he is also writing something white in chapter 19. Is this a positive horse uh, coming? So that, that would actually be a valid thought. You know, does this represent Jesus? He also conquers. So that would be one option of a very good possibility. We're not giving too many details, though, right, beyond that. So that's a good thought. Hey, the crown seems like something Jesus should be wearing. And he does rule. He's allowed to conquer. Could this be representing his... He's allowed to 
start inaugurating and establishing his kingdom. <clears throat> that is a good thought. The second possibility that's been very common is also this is a negative conquering. This is this is some ruler who has like a uh, he's conquering in a negative way, and so he would either be representing like the evil forces who attack the Christians, who are the Christians are overcome, they're being persecuted. So represent the leader of persecution against Christians as a whole, and that he's been given that right by God. Those are basically the two main, <clears throat> the main uh, theories on what this particular person represents. <clears throat> I think they both have good, even within the book, they both have good, um, you could say, support for understanding them to be Jesus at some point, or throughout time has been establishing his kingdom and God's given him victory to bring about the gospel in places that are dark just as much as this could be a negative one the uh, only thing I would lean with the negative one is that the all four horses seem to be together as a unit and this would really break up that unit that would be the only thing that I think ah it's nicer if they're four together but really in terms of our Bible and of revelation there is there isn't a clear like, oh, all the evidence is on this one side. We do have both, both in the book. The beast is given authority to rule and conquer the saints, and Jesus obviously is given the authority to rule and to conquer. So maybe we can leave that up in the air. Would that be okay for us to say, hey, these are two possibilities with these, but regardless, the authority to do what they're doing, God's the one saying, go do this. And that's even why I might even like having the idea of this being an enemy. Because throughout the book, all these evil forces, they're given... Time and authority by God from the throne room. It's never they're on their own causing havoc, right? These wild animals that God's trying to corral and they get loose and they cause evil to happen on the earth. It's always God says, you can go now. I want you to go do this and do it for a limited amount of time. And, and listen, you're just going to be doing this. You're just going to be overcoming or conquering. Maybe you're just going to be persecuting the church. And this fits in with the, what happens in the vision of the fifth seal. The fifth seal, do you we read it. Do you remember what the fifth seal is? Like what, what happens? What do we see in the fifth seal? We see a vision of an altar and people under an altar. I'll help you with that one. What, what is happening there when they're under the altar? Those, uh, those souls. What are they clamoring for? They gave their lives staying faithful to... Mm -hmm. and their faith in it and it appears as though it was in vain because they were put to death so they're crying out for their justification and what I find interesting what my mind went to and it was even last night when Keith and I were reading it together um, verse 11 that says, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their brothers and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. You read it a little differently. Murray might read it a little differently in King James. But um, on my little fireplace, like a little pretend fireplace, I have a growing stack of the voice of the martyrs because I've made donations. They send their their leaflets to me. Not powerful I stories. I can't I can't open it up and read them because I have like a, a horrible inability to let go of it, and it cripples and paralyzes <laughs> me of what their plate is. I cannot get up and go about my day knowing that a brother or sister is facing that kind. So, I, but I can't get rid of them either. I can't throw them out. <laughs> so it's just a growing pile there. And I pray daily for them because I know their stories are real, and I know they're happening, and I know, and I know that apart from Christ giving them the strength to endure, um, they wouldn't be able to. And I feel like um, the voice of those that have already given their lives are like um, able voice crying out to the Lord when he was slain by his brother Cain 
that that's the sound and it's just getting louder. It must just be getting louder and louder because apparently the last person who's to die for the sake of the gospel has not yet happened because that's what's implied here. And that gives a little bit of weight to the length of time that those first horses are able to, to wreak their havoc. It does, you're right, it does and imply that there's a lot of time. It's not a, like an immediate, hey, this week a, is this horse. It's a compiling, and this is so childlike, I guess, of me, but I just picture the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, <laughs> when after Aslan was, Aslan came back, and there was that battle, and all those weird, like that, um, that's what cinematography or whatever, um, they make all these different weird creatures and stuff, but there's that battle going on. That's almost in my mind how I see chapters one to four going on. And why is it happening? Because apparently, the the seals one yeah, to four. Yeah. Why are like why are they able to do that? Because apparently there's something about the martyrs that is purposeful in God's establishing His kingdom. And I don't get it. I don't understand. But I, I think that that's the big umbrella of what's going on. Yeah, and then remember the very next seal. The next seal is the answer to that cry, is it not? Yes. The day of the wrath of the Lamb has indeed come. It's not going to be forgotten. Yeah, that's what it's if, like. It's like the last one comes, and then it's finally... Okay, now we're, we're putting some pieces together. You see how this works really well together, as opposed to ripping them individually into let's find when the horse came and blah, blah, blah. look at the whole thing together this is about the cry of the martyrs you're you're totally right that's like a big piece and it's going to get answered in six and the judgment will fall on the wicked at one point and those two visions there between six and seven are very much to do with exactly this hopefully we'll get to that not, definitely not today but that that's a big major theme is that god is saying this persecution especially these seven churches some of them are at the throne of Satan, it says there. And their, their lives are going to be taken. And the message to the church is, this isn't a sign that God has lost the battle. right? The sign that you're persecuted for your faith, if we're reading the seals correctly, is God has unleashed that for his purposes and his plan. He even says, no, they're not done being killed yet. He doesn't say, like, oh, we're at a battle, and you know what, we're, we're losing some, but we're eventually going to win. He says, no, this is, this is what I want. This is part of my plan. Let's just finish the thought. This is part of the way, like Jesus, it's the same thing. What we're coming back to is the people of God look just like their king. Right? Their king established the kingdom of God and revealed God through his submission unto death to his life. And it looked like a death on the cross. But not every church faces physical death. They all face different threats. Some of them is laziness. When one of the church, God says, your works are not complete in my sight. The other one is you've lost your first love. You've got to work out what is going on in your life that you've allowed to creep in. Like Every church has a different obstacle that they face with that threat of being the lampstand, the light. And some will be physical. And that's what we have today, isn't it? Some churches face physical persecution and death. Others face too much material blessing and they get lazy and they abandon the work that God has called them to and they get involved in other things. Others, like the two churches in the middle of the letters, Thyatira, and I forget the other one where they have Jezebel and they have Balaam and they sell themselves over to false teaching because it's better. They can compromise with the world. All of them face a threat and it's not just physical death. It's going to be various ways that we can compromise our commitment to Jesus and our witness because that's what the souls were killed for. They were killed for their witness and for the word of God. So whatever threatens that, whether that's physical death or whether that's material benefit, comfort, peace, ease, whatever, whatever the threat will be, those will be the enemies that the church is facing. There, I just wanted to complete the thought, but yeah. No, it's, it, it's fine what you were saying. What comes to my mind is the cross-reference with John the Baptist when he was in prison, and he sent his disciples back to Jesus to say, hello, you know, are you the one who was supposed to come? Gives me... Um, a comfort in that sometimes what I'm facing in the dying of my like to myself like I, I can feel like you know this is not a fair this is an injustice or this is something that um, 
Jesus said, you keep your eyes on me and what I'm doing, and you stay where you are because I know that you're there, and it's where I have you to be. Mm -hmm. That's almost kind of a cross-reference to... Like, I, I still... Um, the idea of... Am I in it with Christ to the point where I would give my life for it um, is a, a, a lot in my forefront of my mind. That's because good. I feel like it needs to be there. You know, it, as you're going through your day and you're facing whatever you need to overcome, are you, are you willing to, like, lay your life down? Yeah, the, this book is on it unveiling for us is that that's why we're still here he's still allowing his witnesses to speak to give witness to the word of god and he's like you are you're not just sitting around waiting you're a shining lampstand and there are forces at work to keep you you know realize the danger you're in another later in the book he's going to say calculate the number of the beast it's another repeated theme of listen to what i'm showing you Right? discern what it is that you're engaged in. It's not just the regular daily affairs. God has his witnesses on the earth, and he's also unleashed his judgments, and we are at work. We are still supposed to overcome what's in front of us. So there is a, a call to action, a call to discernment, and prevailing behind that is God hasn't forgotten you, and God will bring judgment. That's that's the sixth seal. He's He's got his time, uh, and Towards the end of the, four, the fourth horseman, I think, is death, right? With hell following him. And that's not a separate force. That's from God's stable, right? We Sometimes in popular thinking, we think there's hell and God or Satan versus God. It's, it's God. And then he has his minions, and hell seems to be one of his tools that he uses. And it's limited. It says only a fourth they're allowed to take of mankind. I don't know if you noticed that. God, and we have this thing on here in our time. We feel like, oh my gosh, things are so unstable. We're going to blow ourselves up and the earth is going to be gone. And it's like Revelation says, God has even determined the evil forces, their limits to what they can do. He's like, death, you can only take a fourth of mankind. doesn't matter how crazy this gets. And we forget that. We feel like it's like this, <gasps> you know, if this next election doesn't go the way we want it, or if, you know, Russians get uptight about something and nuclear bombs start flying and we're going to all die. Like, not according to Revelation. There is a slain lamb who rules over the forces of good, of bad. And he just says, nope, you've got this much time. Even the Antichrist, he's like, you're allowed to do that for about three and a half. And then you're done. Nothing is beyond his, his control. That, that's, part, that's another big part of the theme of the book. Is we keep fighting even under persecution because the lamb has determined it. He's and he's over exactly it. That's exactly why I was saying like when we start feeling like we're being overwhelmed by it all, remember John. <laughs> remember John in the prison saying, you know, Jesus really? You know, you, if you're who you say you are, you can get me out of this. Um, to remember that there's a given time and there's a given way. Yeah, and I wish I wish we could do this because these two visions really highlight that. There's a vision of 144,000 and then an uncountable multitude. And they're both super deep, super known by God, down to the last number. He knows every single one, and they're all sealed, and they're all protected, and none of, nothing happens to them that God's like, nope. He even says in one of the visions, you four beasts, you can't go anywhere until I have sealed mine first. All right, that's what we're going to get to. That's how these all tie together. There's an unleashing of judgments, but in the vision, God says, well, I've got mine, and so we're going to keep them protected from no matter what happens. And we'll, we'll see how this ties into that message to uh, the church and that, that God knows his and he's intimately acquainted with everything. We are secure. And so that is part of the message. You guys are under overwhelming pressure. You've got a Roman during the time of the seven churches. You have a Roman empire. The guy thinks he's a god and he's killing people for believing in Jesus and maybe making them sport, like feeding them the wild animals, right? Maybe during the especially some of the later Roman emperors, this church had this letter and like God saying, that's, that's who I put in charge. Right? Emperor Nero was insane. And Paul wrote during his time period, did honor the king, honor that lunatic over there, under submission to God, honor that king. It, it's a crazy statement in one of the Timothy's letters that he wrote, that he wrote there to the church. You still recognize him, you still, because God is the one above him. He's the one far, far up and above 
that one. And so this is a very present letter for the, for the church of that time and for us today with the temptation to get hysterical with end of the world uh, feelings about what's going to happen. And it's always been this way for the church. And this letter grounds the church. You've got a mission. Your job is to be a light. And God is the one overseeing all the chaos of the world. And he's in charge even of the wild beasts. Unfortunately, I keep forgetting the time. I wanted to end a little earlier. We'll have to pick this, uh, pick this right up. We didn't really quite finish up to... Um, we didn't even really do anything with the horses, really. We just looked at the first one, right? And then we babbled for a while, which is great. Maybe we'll come back to them. I do want to try to cover the whole seals as a whole for us to feel like, okay, here's a picture of what happens throughout time. God unleashes fury, protects his own, and there is a day of judgment coming. And then the whole thing gets repeated in the seven trumpets. But we'll try to walk back and go through this uh, with more detail. But especially if you read 6 and 7, if you come next week with having both of those chapters read, and if you have some specific things that you notice, we're going to look at some Old Testament quotations. If you want to read something, be helpful for next week. If you want to write this down really, really quickly, it would be uh, Isaiah 13, for especially for the sixth seal, some of the imagery in there with the moon becoming blood and what's going on with that and earthquakes. Isaiah 13 and Joel 2 and 3 and Ezekiel 14. So Isaiah 13, Joel 2 and 3. They're not very long chapters. And then also Ezekiel 14. That'll give us a sense of uh, a climactic and and then chapter 6 and 7 here of Revelation. Okay, we'll try to pick up right here in chapter 6, though, next week with the four horsemen and onward. Thanks, guys, for your thoughts and your contributions. We do have to end kind of quickly. Sorry, again. Are you giving a message this morning? No, no, no. I, I want to sit down up there somewhere, have a seat. And you guys who came today for the first time, uh, it was nice to have you.